Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, and welcome to The Bay, local news to keep you rooted. Young people are underrepresented in all levels of government. But take a look at what's happening locally, and you can see that things are changing, even if it's happening slowly. Just take a look at Assemblymember Alex Lee, who made history in 2020 when he became the youngest Asian American, first openly bisexual, and first Gen Z legislator in California history. And he's not the only elected leader injecting new life into halls of power. Last year, the city of Hercules swore in Alexander Walker Griffin as mayor at 25 years old. And in Sunnyvale, residents elected 33-year-old Alyssa Cisneros to city council, where she would become the first openly queer woman to hold the title as vice mayor. It's a unique perspective. And today, we're going to hear from these young electeds. Last week, they sat down with KQED's Guy Marzarati and USF student fellow Caitlin Kennedy to talk about things like running for office during COVID, how to balance working in government with your personal life, and to share their visions for our region's future. Stay with us. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time to join us tonight. I know Tuesday night is usually city council night, so I know you all are, you know, missing some important stuff, but we appreciate you being here. Um, and, you know, as we mentioned, a lot of folks in politics are a lot older than you all. You all got into this uh, elected official game at a fairly young age. So we want to start kind of getting to know how that came about. What was kind of the moment or experiences that sparked your interest uh, in public service. And maybe Mayor Walker Griffin, we can start with you. Yeah, thank you, Guy. And then just thank you, everybody, for having me here. Really, for me, you know, I got into politics around the age of 10. My grandmother, who came from the Jim Crow South, came to California and just always emphasized civic engagement. So that was something that was really important to me. And when I was 17, I was walking along our city's waterfront and I thought it was super, super dirty. And so I go to our city council meeting, say, hey, I'll clean up for free. Just give me the paperwork, whatever I need. Our old city manager told me no. And that's the point really where I just said, hey, I have to get involved. And so that's what led me to want to increasingly just in increase my civic engagement and get involved in different things. So from there, went to the state's community college board, served as my community college student body president, which ultimately landed me where I am today. Council member Cisneros, is there a specific moment that really drove you into politics? So I had my daughter when I was 19 years old and my life was pretty hard. I'll be honest, right? Uh, didn't have a lot of money, was doing a lot of things on my own, hadn't gone to college, didn't know what I was doing. And, and I read this book called Nickel and Dimed by Barbara Ehrenreich. And reading that book at that point in time in my life made me realize the reasons why my life was so hard isn't because I'm not capable or isn't it because other people who are living in poverty aren't capable. It's because there are systems that are designed to make it more difficult for some people to get ahead. And that's just the way society is designed. It's not a bug, it's a feature. And so I needed a, a job at the time and, and there was a candidate that was hiring anyone. No experience, just whoever it is. And that candidate was Barack Obama. Uh, yeah, in 2007. So primary uh, leading into that first election. And I just kind of stuck around. I ended up working uh, on campaigns professionally after that. I, I was doing some public policy work, consulting on various issues and, and candidate campaigns. Went to college, did all of that. And so I've been doing this for about 16 years now. And I never thought that I would be the elected. I thought I have a master's in public policy, staff level, doing that side of it. But it was actually the pandemic that really propelled me into that opportunity and going to districts in my in my hometown, so. I mean, that's something that strikes me about all three of you. You didn't just wake up into government. You've been kind of working in civic issues and, and working uh, in, in government as you led up to become an elected official. But mm -hmm. assembly member for you going straight to the Capitol, straight to the state legislature in 2020, what was that moment for you that was both, you know, I'm interested in this, I wanna get involved in government. And then what was kind of the push to say, I wanna be the candidate? Yeah, I guess it's funny enough to tie in with the council member story. I mean, I, uh, for my district where I grew up in the South Bay, I was kind of the average student that really just wanted to go to class, go home and hang out with your friends. I didn't really do any clubs. I didn't really do any of those stuff until really the last um, 
the last part of being in high school because it looked better on your college applications than I parted <laughs> before that. And you know, at the time, I remember deciding, you know, you're asking 17 year olds to decide what are you gonna do with the rest of your life on those college apps. And I was deciding between my hobby of doing filmmaking or this thing that started popping into my mind about doing politics. And it was actually the time when I was applying to schools, and this shows you how, when I decided, it was the re-election campaign for Barack Obama. So it was around 2012, right? So the re-election time was right then. And I thought, whoa, this seems like a neat thing I could do to help people and probably has more stability than uh, Hollywood. So I'll try to do this one instead. Um, so I applied for poli-sci, political science at UC Davis, never looked back. I was a student senator, then became UC Davis is president uh, during when Donald Trump became president as well. And uh, funny enough, I, I tell a lot of young people this, is that during those experiences being in student government, I'm sure Alex can relate, is I thought I'd never want to do government ever again. Because <laughs> uh, in many ways, it's the same kind of petty disputes and interpersonal politics that exists. But things just lined up and the opportunity happened. And I um, ran a long shot campaign and end up here. But I think it's something remarkable to say that up here, you have people who are very, very young, who are mayors and vice mayors, um, who are changing the way that California is. And I think it's remarkable I get to be part of that generation, mm -hmm. so. And I know elections can be hard, campaigning can be hard. Um, if we could talk about some of the hurdles that you've all reached, um, Cisneros, if we could start with you. Um, do you agree that we have a gerontocracy problem in the government <laughs> currently? Well, that's a really interesting way to put that. I, I, you know, I have some really wonderful colleagues who are from other generations. But there is a problem when you have a serious lack of an entire portion of the population. And that issue is really related to the ability, number one, to stay in the community where you grew up and to develop roots because we have a massive housing crisis and an affordability crisis in our region. So not having that stability makes the idea of engaging on that deeper level really difficult for people. Additionally, I mean, young, young people who are working professionals are disincentivized from joining councils, especially. Um, if you get paid at all, and, and I have the highest part-time council uh, in Santa Clara County where we pull in a, a whopping $30,000 a year. It's not part-time. You spend a lot more time than yeah. that, and you're having to negotiate you know, the cost-benefit analysis, just balancing your life. So there isn't a lot of opportunities in leadership if you're young. It's designed for people who are either independently wealthy or retired. So that is a problem because you only get one perspective. Assemblymember Lee, how do you see that balance in Sacramento? Because this was right one of the arguments for term limits mm -hmm. in the early 90s, was there you had folks that were at the Capitol wielding influence for decades and decades. But the flip side of that is the Capitol lost a lot of experience. And it turned out that lobbyists and people kind of who worked in the Capitol ended up knowing more than the electeds themselves. So how do you view the balance of kind of needing to get new blood in the Capitol with that kind of institutional knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I've firmly been public about I support term limits, and I think now that our new compromise of term limits has worked out, I think it is good. We had the first round of term limits that were very punitive. I think they were designed that way because the public was very angry at the way Sacramento was. Sure, you had a lot of experience, but you also had a infamy from the people up there, and they were doing a lot of shady things that I don't think would have survived today. Um, but I think now that the term limits are 12 years total, uh, whether you serve any combo or blend between the Senate and the Assembly, I think that's a good place to be. I frankly think it could be a little bit longer, but we haven't 
I think we're seeing a rebalance now where the legislators, their staff, and the people we trust in that, cer- in that sense, so we want to empower it through democracy, are now the ones who have had that experience and that expertise. And I've come in at a very interesting time because I came in in 2020, obviously during the pandemic, which is very interesting, but in of itself is that the first class of the new term limit legislators are terming out this coming, this following election cycle. And there's only like six of them. They came in like 40. So even on average, most politicians turn over. In six, eight years, they either quit, something happens to them, uh, they're forced to quit, or they get promoted, right? Or they get promoted, they find another job. So it's this kind of natural turnover that exists. Uh, frankly, I've also been joining the calls that Congress should have at least like an 18-year term limit too. I'm not convinced that someone can start a career and then by the time they end it, someone becomes from an infant to an adult that it's not time for you to move on. Yes, there's a lot of experience, but it's also important to refresh the legislature constantly to have those perspectives. And if it weren't for term limits, for better or for worse, depending on who I say this to, you wouldn't have me. <laughs> you wouldn't have me in the legislature either. But it also gives stability in that sense too. So, you know, for me, I term out in 2032, and I'm already thinking about who should replace me and who we should cultivate to carry on that movement. But it creates a stability versus, you know, for instance, we had dramatically in the U.S. Senate, right? Someone had to die, and then suddenly things change, right? Like, that should not be the way we do things. We don't live in a medieval aristocracy. We live in a democracy in which you should be able to stably plan this. And if someone has 20 years, 12 years, whatever it is, to do the job they're here for, and they're successful at it or they weren't successful at it, I think it's a good enough amount of time to do a job. And Mayor Walker Griffin, maybe you can speak on um, the price that citizens pay for the gerontocracy issue or the term oils um, considering term limits and the issues surrounding that. Yeah, and so similar to my colleagues, I also got elected and became a council member in 2020. Craziest time to campaign was during the pandemic. But um, in my city's 123 year history, I'm the first council member, first mayor to have ever grown up in the city. And so one of the reasons what made me want to run was I always felt like that perspective was missing. And so when we talk about someone who's been sitting behind the dice for 20 years, usually that person has ran for some other office at some point. Very rarely have you seen somebody be that stagnant and just want that office. But it becomes sort of a relevancy issue. I don't know what I could talk about on my council 16 years down the road, and I'm almost hitting 20 years on it. So and I also think about, too, like the missing perspective. Every city changes about five to 10 years. If you walk around Hercules right now, the average family hasn't lived in town for more than seven years. So it's a completely constant, new, fresh perspective. And I think we want to honor that, right? Um, so when we talk about like the next wave and the next people that we want to see in these sort of elected offices, we're thinking about that new relevant problem, similar to what Assemblymember Lee mentioned. If you've been in office for 50 years, how can you talk about being relevant to the problem? How can you sit there, have an iPhone in your hand and not know how to use it? If your staff has to guide you on how, to, on how Facebook works and how Instagram works, I think you might, you might need to check out. We'll give you a nice proclamation or something like that, but it's time to go at that point. Well, let's talk a little bit about campaigning. Uh, you all campaigned during the pandemic. Uh, for some of you, the first time, the first campaigns you were running was during COVID. And Mayor, we actually have a photo uh, of you here, I think, going out and doing the doing the work of sign holding um, out during COVID. I mean, kind of take us through that experience. Um, and as someone who I know you had worked for other elected officials in the past, was there something that you maybe brought to the campaign where it was like, I've seen someone do it this way. I know I, I know I know I need to carry this forward or 
I know I don't want to do this as a candidate or as an elected official. Well, first thing I would have done is if I knew somebody was taking a picture of me, I would have put lotion on my elbows because that's embarrassing. <laughs> um, but one thing that I told myself that I, w I wouldn't do was be the elected official that disappears after election time. So people would always tell me, why do you give out your number to people when you're campaigning? Well, I'm like, well, I told them I wanted to be accessible. I told them I wanted to represent them. So why not be accessible, right? Why not be the open door? Um, but and it's not a burner. You're giving them the real... <laughs> my mom gives out my number more than I do, so just letting you know. Um, but another thing that I definitely did learn was just that connectedness of meeting people where they were. It was so weird knocking on doors and not talking to people physically. I was talking through Ring. So for like the first year after like winning my election, I would be a lucky Safeway and somebody would come up to me like, hey, we talked to my doorbell. And I'm like, yeah, house, you, yeah, good to see you. But another thing that I, that I say that I would not do, that I would have done differently, was I wouldn't have put so much of an emphasis on yard signs. We had a huge digital presence, but this again, this is where the generational conflict was happening. You don't have your yard signs out. You don't have your yard signs out. Well, I just spent three grand on digital ads. I'm gonna be running 24 seven for the next couple of weeks. No, that's not gonna win. No, that's not gonna win. So I think I would have worked with more people who are a little bit more relevant to how technology <laughs> works for things in the politest way possible. And assembly member, do you have anything to add? Running during the pandemic was certainly an interesting challenge. So I had obviously the primary and the general. I won the primary on March 3rd, 2020. My county, Santa Clara County, was the first county to shut down on March 17th. So a story I recount often is on March 11th, I went up to Sacramento. I met with the speaker, Anthony Rendon at the time, uh, and he congratulated me. He said, you did really good. You're very, it's very impressive. No one knew who you were and how this happened. But, and I remember saying to him, this is really nice of you and to have this nice meeting in the speaker's office and everything, but I'm gonna lose. You know, the data is gonna change and I'm gonna fall out of the top two, um, but it didn't. And then obviously we, the world changed really ra rapidly. I did not declare victory until April 24th, which was when the results were actually certified. I literally, no one in our team could really believe it. But uh, frankly, you know, if we, California, did not say, we want to speak first on the presidential election and we had a June primary, I don't know if I would have won because most of our campaign was in door knocking and talking to people face to face. Yes, it got to the point where I'm talking to people through a ring and social media, but that was the heart of our campaign. So I don't know if it, I would have won without that. Yeah. And you had the Bernie effect, right? The pr presidential mm -hmm. primary was going on. Mm -hmm. uh, you were running as a progressive. And you, it's interesting, you were running as I a I got endorsed by Bernie, too. And you were endorsed by Bernie, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, But you were running in you know, South Bay, parts of San Jose, Milpitas, Fremont, that I think people might not associate with being the most progressive parts of the Bay Area. So how did you make your message connect with residents? Or is that outdated? Do you find that people were, you know, that, that is a place that that kind of message could be embraced? Yeah, I think progressive is all about being rooted in people. So if our message is about being additive to people and making sure that everyday families have access to healthcare, housing, political rights, civil rights, then it actually engages a lot of people. One fact that I've always been astounded by and why I didn't think I was supposed to win was that general wisdom is that the early vote is the more conservative, older vote. Mm. I won on the first ballot. I kept winning as it went on. And then the, the late vote, if you will, you know, which are generally supposed to be younger, more progressive people, boosted me up even higher. But I did really well with the early vote. And from what I've now been in office three years is that I think a lot of our message of what we talk about resonates with people of all ages and sometimes political parties political partisanship that they think they have. Because what I talk about is getting corporate money out of politics. So we should not have an elite system in our democracy. 
how we should have housing for everyone and how we shouldn't means test to death everything that the government comes and helps you with. And even though that's a broad reaching kind of progressive idea, I find a lot of older folks, even in my community say, actually, you might have a point. Or I argue with Republicans at the door and be like, well, maybe you're right about this. And you know, especially what we know in my district is that, and I'm one of two legislators that doesn't take any corporate money whatsoever in the legislature. It's immensely popular in a district and people want that source of integrity, even though of course in our hyper-political world, that's seen as super far left or whatever it is. I think normal people every day want those things. And that's what my district connects with. And, and to add on to that a little bit, something that we all have in common, right? We were elected in 2020. That's yeah. a presidential election year where I think you see a lot of the, the difference and you get a, a skewed older, skewed conservative voter base is the off year elections. And when I think about that, I, I feel so fortunate to be in that presidential election year because you do have more people just turning out. It's really hard to turn people out and keep people engaged through those uh, less you know, those smaller campaigns, because I like to say, Joe Biden, he did a lot for my campaign. He really turned out the vote for me. Hey, Joe Biden, going ahead and reminding people, fill out your ballots, make sure you're doing that. And that's a huge help to more progressive candidates. You have people who are turning out for that. And council member to follow up. Mm -hmm. um, we have a photo here of you on your campaign trail in 2020. Um, what was it like campaigning for the first time during the height of the pandemic? Like I said, I, I had worked on many, many a campaign, and, and the first thing I had to do was forget a lot of everything that I'd learned, because it no longer applied. I, I didn't knock any doors, actually, zero. It was not something that my community was uh, appreciative of when other candidates did it. So I, I kind of <laughs> listened to that and went full digital. And, and something that I did during the campaign was, I had a, you know, a team of phone makers, I had my volunteers make COVID check-in calls through the list, just saying, I'm here with Alyssa Cisneros' campaign, but we're not here to talk about her. Do you have the resources that you need? Because a lot of times when you're speaking to voters, you're, you're talking to them because you wanna know what they're concerned about and what they care about. And during the pandemic in 2020, we knew what people were concerned about in that moment, right? I was just running in the general and really tuning into that and, and being responsive in a different way. It was a lot of digital phone banking um, and text banking, huge, um, as well as I have uh, there in that image, uh, my, my door hangers, we did hang doors, we didn't do the conversations and then lawn signs, but lawn signs don't vote. I, ha I had some volunteers at the local makers uh, center go ahead and, and print up some of those cool uh, Alyssa campaign branded masks. Assemblymember Lee, um, as the first Gen Z legis state legislator, have you experienced any discomfort from your fellow colleagues um, about your age? And have you ever experienced feelings of imposter syndrome? Uh, all the time. <laughs> all the time. Uh, oftentimes, my colleagues like to remind us that I am younger than them, even though I don't bring it up. Uh, so they'll, all, they'll often be like, yeah, you hear this, right? Yeah. They're like, oh, this thing happened in 19... 85 or something. Oh, you weren't born yet then. I was like, yeah, I mean, we know. I, I mean, I'm not going to bring how old you are then, but it's like, but it seems to be very often that they like to bring those things up and then they'll be surprised when I understand some sort of like 70s reference or something. And I'm like, I know what the internet is. I can search things and, you know, pop culture existed too. So it happens a lot. Uh, I will say, I think oftentimes that what we still struggle with, even from other Democrats, is that I get talked down to a lot. Uh, often I think... Uh, I, giving the benefit of the doubt, I think it is that they see their children in me. So it's like when we have a disagreement, 
they try to bring down that tone, which I've not seen them do to other colleagues, to be frank, even if I have disagreement. Mm -hmm. And I've had to have a stern talking to sometimes that you can't talk to me like that, like I'm your son or something. Uh, I'm your colleague. So it's happened, unfortunately. And, you know, it's unfortunately in our space, we have to reassert ourselves that we are equals. I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. We're equals. Uh, so it happens a lot, you know, and with imposter syndrome, you know, it's all the time. I, I actually don't think I have imposter syndrome anymore because I've just accepted that I'm winging everything I'm doing. <laughs> that I, I don't exactly know if this is right, but I feel like it's right. So I'm just going to do it. And that's what, hey, that's what got me to win elections. So I said this, I'm just going to embrace that, you know. Councilmember Mayor, I saw you both nodding through that. Yeah, uh, something I hear a lot and have since I decided to run, and it, it really didn't happen so much in my uh, career in public policy. You look too young to be a council member. Mm. I'm, like, I'm 35 years old. I don't feel particularly young. Or you don't look like a council member. Or last year, you don't look like a vice mayor. And, and it begs the question, what do they look like? You might forget, I have 16 years of experience doing this, right? So age doesn't necessarily come with that experience. You can be relatively young, unfortunately, rel like relatively young, and, and still come in more experience than most council members do. So I, I do have to reassert that. And the imposter syndrome was really hard, because like I said, I, I'd been treated with a lot of respect in my former roles. So at the beginning of being elected, that was so hard. But when you realize you have a community around you, you get the people together to hype you up and say like, no, that's, you know, swear word insert there. You should remember exactly how much you know, right? And, uh, and the longer you do it, the easier it gets, I think. You develop a thick skin. Yeah, I totally agree with both my colleagues up here. I mean, for me, I think where I really was able to, I still experience it, but nip the sort of imposter syndrome in the butt was when I was 20 and we were starting Calbright College and got to talk to Governor Brown. He came to our board meeting, he's sitting right across from me and I had to tell him everything that was wrong with it. So one of the things is telling him that, hey, Governor, we don't have the broadband to support this infrastructure throughout the state. This is, this is in what, 2018 before the pandemic and this conversation even started with broadband. And then so I get ripped apart by like some people like <laughs> through my email um, while the meeting was still going on. So it was really crazy experiencing that. But then after that, me and Governor Brown are sitting directly in front of each other having lunch. And I'm like, so, Governor, what are you going to do next now that you're terming out? He says, kid, I'm making olive oil with this fork pointed at me. And then so at that moment, I was like, OK, all imposter syndrome's lost. But I really had to remember that because when you're sitting right there, that kind of moment's happening. I had to remember to myself that I'm here and now as the mayor, you're coming to me for something, right? More often than not, people will see the age before they see the resume. So for example, you know, in 2018, for most people who don't know this, I was at the campfire in paradise. So when people were hearing about the casualties that were happening, that was me and my friends keeping the tally on that and running those numbers. So people will oftentimes never see that at 20 years old, I voted to make community college tuition free and have been doing all this stuff before I was even old enough to drink. They just see how old you are. Had a meeting with some folks not too long ago. I have this jacket that says Alex Walker Griffin, mayor. Come up, sit down at the table, and they said, oh, so you work for the mayor. And I said, well, uh, he'll be here any minute now. So um, it happens a lot, but you know what? You have to laugh about it, right? And then so if people follow me on social media, you'll, ever, you'll see my um, mid-morning rants after the gym. And so sometimes I'll talk about that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you got to laugh at it. And Mayor, maybe you can speak on some of the sacrifices of the jobs. I know um, I'm sure there's moments where you have to skip some social events and miss out seeing your friends and family. Oh, absolutely. I mean, being getting elected at 23, now I'm 26. 
most of my friends are still going to the club. So <laughs> it's not like I'm going to be joining them. You're like, there's this really important sequel appeal that I have to. Right, you know, exactly. <laughs> so I have to be like, hey, guys, I can't join you tonight because I don't want you guys can take your pictures with, with your bottle of Hennessy or whatever. I can't partake in that. Um, but even sort of the little things, right? Like, you know, you just have to be kind of cognizant of how things will present potentially project to the public. But also, too, I have a full time job. And so just it happens every single week. You'll either have a meeting or you'll have an event that you have to skip out on simply because of the requirements for it. Whether I'm talking to my city manager or I'm talking to someone who wants to do something in town, it always collides. But I think the big benefit for me is I'm a bachelor, so I don't have to think about like, you know, how's this going to impact my children or I have to like think about like my spouse or something like that. So that's probably like the one benefit that's been in my favor. And Councilmember, did that, did the kind of juggling work and family change at all as an elected official versus kind of your past roles, your past work, did it get more difficult? Yeah, yeah, of course it does. It, it does get harder because before, even though like the long hours, right, my, my kid, bless her, she uh, is used to that kind of, that, that's, I have a lot of evening engagements, that's kind of been the thing, but it's different when you're also so public facing. In a lot of ways, your life is an open book. And so the kind of anonymity you could have as a staffer or as just somebody who works in a research firm or in a public policy shop is different. So you have to think about how your actions are gonna go ahead and perhaps reflect on your family. Like, is this gonna do it? Because one of the sacrifices you make is really to your safety, especially um, women in politics right now, right? Uh, I've had stalkers, I've had to move into a more secure building because uh, of threats to my safety over things like votes or just being in the public eyes. So the kind of sacrifices that my family have to make for me is, is balancing that, like, oh, we're, we're actually physically unsafer to the point where we're packing stuff, right? And uh, in terms of balancing it, I'm like, my kid's a little bit older, so um, less of that demands. But when I talk to people with younger kids especially, there's a lot that you miss there um, and because especially around election time, you have a lot of weekend stuff too. Mm -hmm. So you have to be able to find that time to spend quality time throughout the week as best you can, or else it's really easy to lose touch with people. And council member, I know we've talked about your campaigning during the pandemic. Civic participation changed tremendously during the pandemic. Is there any risk of going back to the old ways, like knocking on doors, having the yard signs, stuff like that? Well, this, I, I'm running again in 2024. Um, and, and engaging civically. And I, as far as I know, at least now, right? But, you know, with the world as it's been, I don't make any guesses of what tomorrow is going to be like or, or what's going to be required of me during this campaign because we live in unprecedented times every single day. I think we were talking about that earlier. And it, I am looking forward to getting back to that door to door, right? And, but we do have more tools in our toolkit. There are silver, silver linings to the pandemic. Um, I look forward to continuing having a robust digital presence, right? Especially because young voters are still reached best that way. But there are so many opportunities to, when you talk to someone face-to-face, -face, it's a little bit irreplaceable because instead of hearing from me on the phone or over text or one of my volunteers, being able to talk to me and know who I am builds a really important trust, especially if you have like a, a, a district like mine where you have only about 12,000 voters. You can actually go and talk to everyone if you like really uh, get a good pair of sneakers. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that a lot. Um, 
but we can take a lot of lessons about what it means to reach people who we weren't able to reach before because those, of those challenges with COVID. And, and we all learned um, both as candidates and as governments how to do that. And, and you know, it, we'd be remiss not to continue doing it. Right. I mean, city council meetings, the state legislature, suddenly it was all available on Zoom and you could listen to hours and hours of public comment from sure the comfort can. of your living room. So is that, I mean, that kind of access, is there a concern that maybe that goes away? Is that something, at least in Hercules, that you're, you, you want to make a part of council engagement going forward? Well, actually, it's unfortunate we had to do this. We actually had to, in so many other cities in the area and actually throughout the country, mm -hmm. had to do this. Uh, we had to cut public comment on Zoom because there's been a wide array of uh, people throughout the country calling in and saying some of the most hateful things that you could ever say. Um, so it is unfortunate that that is the case, but that does not mean the accessibility has gone away. So one way that we've definitely um, stepped up our game in terms of being able to reach with constituents, either from the city council perspective or through the city perspective, is we have an app online. In addition to mm -hmm. every other, um, well, we have an app that you can download to your phone. So rather than you calling 510-245, blah, 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 you just take a picture of whatever problem it is, say on the street or whatever, and it goes directly to our public works team. But I do think that it is a little scary to think that we have some bad actors who are ruining a good thing and we don't know when it's necessarily gonna stop. But up until literally last our last meeting two weeks ago, um, all of our meetings have been on Zoom and it's been great to have people who traditionally would have never come in, especially some of the um, senior populations that can't make it, out on the, make it out at Tuesday at 7 p.m. or working families, have them participate online has been great. We went to full, we decided as a council to do a permanent hybrid meeting. So we meet in City Hall, but we also have that Zoom component. Um, and we have not shut down public comment, uh, remote public comment yet. And we really hope we don't have to because that is such a, a huge way we get participation. In fact, we often get more people participating in public comment on Zoom than we do in person, actually. That's most common. And so what people don't realize, it's like you can go ahead and your email your your congressman and you know hopefully you'll get something back from a staff member but your city council members your you and your assembly member with your district staff we're here and you can talk to us and engaging in that democratic process is so important so even though that zoom bombing is happening mm -hmm. i'm like i want to stick it out and and see what we can do to curb it and you know i'm more stubborn than they are so in the legislature uh we've unfortunately mostly gone away with zoom comments now um, it's to the discretion of committee chairs now. So I think in the assembly, I am one of two committees that still take Zoom public comment. And yes, it is riddled with people who have very um, terrible things to say. But uh, that's I still believe in reducing the barriers of public public participation. In my first year in office, I thought I was going to author a slam dunk easy bill. I said. Wow, we learned during the pandemic that Zoom comment and Zoom hybrid meetings work so well, let's just keep this forever. Uh, that was one of the hardest bills I ever worked on. The first time the cities opposed it because they said it would cost too much, mm. it's impossible to do, and then suddenly everyone was doing, I mean, everyone was basically doing it. So I said, I don't understand how so you doing it. Exactly, I mean, everyone was doing it, but the cities still said that it was too cost prohibitive, you couldn't do it, et cetera, et cetera. And then I made this big compromise where, okay, why don't you just do it the big cities, right? Theoretically speaking, even though the technology scales the same, no matter if you're LA or if you're Sunnyvale, um, why don't we just try to do it? Yeah, unfortunately that got vetoed and uh, still hasn't been this 
been the same since, but I still think it's important for city councils, if you are able to do it, to do the hybrid method, because it really does reduce a lot of those barriers. And especially in Sacramento, where you'd really legitimately have to take an entire day to come up to do your 30 seconds, it would, means a lot to people. So that's why I keep it in my own committee. All right, well, we are gonna have to leave the conversation there. Thank you three so much for coming out, spending time with us, and giving us some insight into your work. Good job, y'all. That was KQED politics and government reporter Guy Marzarati and USF student fellow Caitlin Kennedy in conversation with Assemblymember Alex Lee, Hercules Mayor Alexander Walker Griffin, and Sunnyvale Councilmember Alyssa Cisneros. If you want to watch the full live event, we'll leave you a link in our show notes. This KQED live event was produced by Ryan Davis. It was cut down and edited by our senior editor, Alan Montecilio. By the way, there are a bunch of really cool live events happening all the time at our headquarters in San Francisco. For more on all the upcoming ones, go to kqed.org live. The Bay is a production of member-supported KQED. I'm Erica Cruz Guevara. Talk to you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, what's up? I'm Erica Cruz Guevara, the host of The Bay. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts with an S.